Okay, let's go ahead and uh, turn back to Matthew 21. We've been in a series called Cultivating a Culture of Prayer. And uh, this has been our foundational scripture. We've talked about Jesus' zeal for the house of prayer, for the culture of prayer among his people. And then we've talked about the big implications and the individual implications. What does it mean to be called a house of prayer? Also talked about what does it look like to abide as, you know, abiding in the Lord is the sort of the biblical foundational idea but behind living in a culture of prayer. And that's the way Jesus taught in John 15. He didn't actually teach quiet times. He taught abiding. And I'm not against quiet times. I'm all for them. But they're the bonus. They're not just the, the only thing. Uh, abiding is the norm. And then the quiet times are the bonus. And so we took a couple weeks and went through John 15 nice and slow and just developed those thoughts that Jesus gave us about abiding in his presence, abiding in his spirit, abiding in him, and he abiding in us. Well, today I want to take, I want to come back to the original verse we started with, Matthew 21, and I want to answer this question, what basis did Jesus have to show up in Jerusalem and, and say, how come you guys aren't praying? Uh, there's, there's ideas that are established already in the minds of the hearers and in his own mind that would have to be in place for him to show up and say, hey, you're supposed to know this, where's the prayer? And so I want to develop uh, the foundational thoughts on uh, a culture of prayer biblically. I had a friend recently Really good friend, very supportive of uh, the house of prayer here. And they just kind of asked me, they said, so, you know, what's the biblical basis for what you guys are doing? You don't really have a lot of scripture for that. And I said, well, actually, we got lots of scripture for it. And they said, oh, really? I go, oh, yeah. And I just be, I took, you know, 10 minutes and walked them through uh, from Adam to the age to come just real fast. And they were blown away. And I thought, you know, there's very few that I think maybe understand the biblical basis for night and day prayer or the biblical basis even for what Jesus is saying there. My house shall be called a house of prayer. It's written. You know this. It's like he's saying it. You know this. Now, where's the prayer? And so let's just read the verse. And then I want I want to give definition to the biblical basis for Jesus to say these things. And this, beloved, this is important that we understand the backdrop of this because this is part of our faith. It's a critical part of understanding the storyline of Scripture. And uh, I think probably we, we, we don't really understand this very well. So, Matthew 21, 13, again, let's just, just read the verse, set it up, and then I'll, I'll begin to tell the story. It says, and he said to them, here he is, it's at the end of his life, it's during the Passover, he's in the temple courts again, and he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And so again, the reason he's saying that is what we're going to talk about this morning, but essentially what he's saying is, you know this place is supposed to be a place of prayer. 
But you've turned it into a, a place of commerce. Why would you do such a thing? And so I want to fill in the, the, the backstory here. Now you remember in scripture when the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. And the Lord told them, he said, I, I want, uh, he told Moses, he said, I want my, my people to come out and worship me. He goes, we're going we're gonna to do a few things in Egypt and I want my people to worship me. That was the point. God wanted Israel to come into the wilderness to worship the Lord. And we know the story, God uh, rains 10 plagues down on Egypt till finally they let the people go and then Pharaoh makes a really fatal mistake. He lets them go and then he follows them and the Lord drowns the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And, and so the people of God, they, they, they go to Mount Sinai. It's a three month kind of deal until they get set up at Mount Sinai and the Lord descends in fire and thunder and smoke on Sinai. And you can pick that story up in Exodus 19 if you want to just read that on your own. And it's a, it's a powerful encounter with the Lord. And it's there the Lord says, I want you to become a kingdom of priests. That's the first time we see that, that language. Now we know in Christ that we are to be a kingdom of priests. Ones with access to the heart of God. And more than that, it's, 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 we represent uh, God to men and men to God. And, and that's the priest, priestly ministry in a nutshell. It's, much, it's got much broader implications, but we have access to the heart. It's not just access to the throne room. It's access to the heart of God. He said, my whole, all my people, I want them to be a kingdom of priests. And so then what does he do? The Lord gives them instructions on the mode of worship and how he wants the worship to take place consistently and continually. And what does he do? He tells them to set up the tabernacle. He establishes the priesthood, establishes a sacrificial system. And in Leviticus, he describes, uh, what he does is he, he sets the priesthood up and he, he um, sanctifies the priests and and. And basically, day one, this is one of the most interesting things to me, day one, when they, they get started with the, the new worship uh, reality that the Lord has set up with the sacrificial system, as soon as they're ready to go, God, he, uh, he releases fire on their sacrifice. They actually have a sacrifice there, and they, they don't light it, God lights it. That's a barbecue. I mean, that's... God is the one that sends the fire. And then the Lord says to them that the fi that fire should never go out. Now that's interesting to me because you know the kind of Leviticus 6:13 is kind of it's kind of a, a a cliche scripture people hear it often the fire on the altar shall never go out. Well what's an interesting point about it is the fire that the Lord says shall never go out is the heavenly fire that the Lord released. And the priest's job is to just continue to kindle that fire with fresh offerings and fresh wood. It's pretty powerful, actually. The entire sojourn of Israel in the wilderness, they had this, this fire of worship. It's a, a picture of the internal fire that we receive in Christ. But this fire of worship, it continues to burn. 
And it's so powerful because it was actually the fire that fell from heaven that they continued to kindle their 40 years in the wilderness. So we move from there into the promised land. And uh, Joshua takes the children of Israel into the promised land. And they set up the tabernacle at Shiloh and, and they go through some challenges under Eli and they go through some challenges under Saul until finally God gets a little guy named David. And David is a teenager. He's about 16. He's, a, he's the, the youngest of his brothers and he is in charge of the sheep. Um, <laughs> that's significant because if you're in charge of the sheep, that means you're not the... You're not, at least in the family, you're not esteemed. You're probably not the sharpest arrow in the, in the quiver. And, uh, and so they put him out there in the sheep kind of as a get away from us, little buddy, kind of move. And one day, the prophet Samuel decides he's going to come to their little town, Bethlehem. Small little town. And Samuel's name is renowned in Israel. Samuel is known as a prophet who... Not one word, not one prophetic word that he ever gave fell to the ground. They all came to pass. How would you like that? <laughs> there you are, your little town. You got you and your 150 folks that live there. And the guy, the prophet comes. And the stories of his exploits are like all over the place. He's a judge in Israel. Of course, Saul, he anointed Saul king, but Saul had turned from the Lord. And, and so Samuel shows up on, on your doorstep of your town. The, I mean, the murmurs go all through the town. Oh my gosh, Samuel's here. He's got a, he said he's here to sacrifice. Oh gosh. You're probably thinking somebody's in trouble, bad trouble. And then he picks your house. I'm going to come to your house for the sacrifice tonight, Jesse. And at that point, it's like, oh my God, what did we do? What did we do? And Samuel shows up, and he has been told by the Lord to anoint the next king. And of course, you know the story. They leave David out. They leave him out in the sheep. Samuel looks at the oldest, says, man, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. And the Lord says, no, 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 don't look on his outward appearance because I'm not looking at that, I'm looking at the heart. And, De and, and Samuel looks at all of them and he realizes the guy I'm supposed to anoint is not in front of me. He goes, you got any more kids? He goes, I just got that, little, that one little boy, he's out there at the sheep. He goes, we're not going to go any further till you bring him out here. And David comes and Samuel says, this is him. And he anoints him at about age 16 as king over Israel. It's powerful. Now, it's 14 years. It's 14 years till David becomes king just over Judah and Hebron. And then seven more till he becomes king in Jerusalem over all Israel. Have you ever had a prophetic word that took 20 years to come to pass? Oh, wait a minute. It took 20 years and for, you know, 14 of them, you were like living in caves being hunted down as a fugitive. Anybody ever had that? It's not most of our testimonies. But there's, that's, that's David's testimony. 
So he becomes king in Jerusalem. He's about 37. Now here's the interesting thing. There's only two times that David and Samuel, it's recorded in scripture only twice that they're together. One is that encounter where Samuel anoints David as king. And then the next one is when David is on the run from from Saul and he's, he's going to get murdered, and David goes running to, Saul, uh, to Samuel and says, hey, what happened? One minute ago, I was a, sh- a sh- you know, sheep boy. Now, I'm, I was, you know, for a minute there, I was over the whole army. I, I mean, I killed Goliath. Like, I got real strong. And, and now Saul's trying to kill me. So he runs to Samuel. And it's interesting because when he runs to Samuel, Saul sends assassins to go kill David. And each time the spirit of the Lord grips those assassins before they can even get to David and they begin to prophesy the word of the Lord. I believe they were prophesying David's future. I believe that when Saul sent them to kill David, to destroy his future, the spirit of the Lord came on him and they begin to prophesy, David shall be king in Israel. And so then Saul himself goes down. And the same thing happens to Saul. The Spirit of the Lord grips him and he begins to prophesy. Now, have you thought about how powerful the Spirit of the Lord had to have been resting on that time that David and Samuel were together? It was a few weeks period of time, minimum. could have been longer. But, I mean, for Saul to send several groups of assassins and for them to come back and report, I mean, you, you got at least two, three weeks in there. And it's such a powerful time that the Lord will not allow it to be interrupted. Now, David gets hunted, you know, furiously for the next seven years. But that moment was critical. And the Lord stops those enemies and And fills them with the spirit and has them prophesy God's intended future for David. And so it makes you, it draws your attention. You go, so what was going on there? What is going on there that the presence of the Lord was so powerful to intercept those assassins? Well, 1 Chronicles 9 gives us a little hint. I'm just going to tell it to you. And we'll pick up a little later in 1 Chronicles 17, but... In 1 Chronicles 9, it's just one of those chapters where it's going through all those names. You know those chapters that you skip? <laughs> kind of the pages in your Bible still a little stuck together. This is name and after name, Jeduthun and Heman, and just a, you know, names of like 15 syllables. And, and, and you're going, okay, yeah, there's a bunch of guys. There's him and other guy and another name I can't pronounce. Well, you go through 1 Chronicles 9, and it's, it's really like that. But then it says this interesting thing, and it gives some definition from about verse 22 to 33. It says that all those that were chosen as gatekeepers by David and Samuel, they numbered 200, 212. And it's an interesting verse because they were picked by David and Samuel, but as I just told you, David and Samuel are only together twice While Samuel was still alive, one, when David got anointed king. Second, when David's on the run from Saul and and the Lord is intercepting those assassins. 
And so I believe it, it's, it's this. I believe that when David and Samuel were together on that second occasion, Samuel, well, I believe that's what 1 Chronicles 9 is talking about. David and Samuel began to set up the details for what would be known as the tabernacle of David. It was then that David and Samuel got together and they picked the gatekeepers. And they were setting in motion the plans. And I believe Samuel was instructing this young man, David, at that time. He was probably 21. And he was instructing him in his destiny. The, the, the massive implications of his destiny as a king and what he should do. And I believe it was then that Samuel gave David the blueprints for what was going to be known as the tabernacle of David. Now here's what we'll do. We'll, we'll fast forward and we'll pick up the story. And I'm going to read a bunch of scripture. I don't want to, I want to give it as much to you in story format. And you can go back and read it on yourself. Read it, read it yourself. But if you'll just write 1 Chronicles 12 through 17. Just write it down. And read through that narrative sometime this week. You'll find the details in there that I'm about to tell you. So when David now becomes king over all Israel, not just king in Hebron, but king in Jerusalem, here's what he does. The very first thing he does is this. He says, we've got to clear out the Jebusites. Now the Jebusites had made covenant with Israel years ago. They said, you can't destroy us. Uh, because we are coming from a long, uh, a long place away and, and we need help, we need rations and, and water. Well, they lied and uh, they actually were living right there uh, on Mount Zion. And so they lived there for years and years and years. So David, when he becomes king, the first thing he does is he drives the Jebusites off of Mount Zion. And David begins to fortify Mount Zion. It's called the city of David. He builds houses and, and walls, and, and they, they build this thing up. And the very next thing that David does is he goes to get the ark from the house of Abinadab. Because the ark had been lost in the days of Eli, and Saul had never recaptured it. And, and so here's where I'm saying, I believe that he had this conversation with Samuel, and Samuel said, says to him, son, you, you've got to do this. You've got to go get the Ark of the Covenant and you've got to set up a tent for it and you've got to do worship and prayer around it. It's going to be the centerpiece of your kingdom. Now let's go through and lay out who's going to work as gatekeepers and who's going to be the Levites. I believe that was their conversation. And, and, and so when you see David become king, the very first thing he does is he drives out the Jebusites off of Mount Zion and then he says... All right, all you guys that are gathered to me, let's go get the ark. And he, he, before he goes and gets the ark, he sets up a tent right there on Mount Zion where he's going to put the ark of the covenant. He's already got it in his mind what he's going to do. And you guys know the story. He goes to the house of Abinadab. They get the ark of the covenant. They put it on a new cart. Uzzah and Ahio, they're the attendants of the ark. And what happens? The, the oxen stumbles at Kidon's threshing floor, and Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark because the, the cart is stumbling, and when he reaches out to steady the ark, the, the, the fire of God hits him, and he falls down dead. He's short-circuited. And David, 
is pained because he's, he's, how, he, say, he says, how am I going to get the ark of God to me? This is what I'm commissioned to do. How am I going to do it? Well, he goes and he, he reads the books of the law and he realizes, oh, wait, 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 the only guys that can carry the ark are the Levites. And you don't touch the ark. You don't put it on a new cart. You put it on the shoulders of the priesthood and you, and you put the, the, the wooden rods through the hoops on the sides and they carry it on their shoulders. Oh, okay. So they go back and the ark has been in Ob- Obed-Edom's house at this point and for three months, just the presence of the ark in this man's house caused everything he had to prosper. Undoubtedly, David realizes if he gets the ark and puts it at the center of his kingdom... It's going to bring prosperity to all Israel. So they go, they get the ark, they put it on the shoulders of the priest. Every six paces for about 20 miles, they take six paces, they stop, and they sacrifice. Every six paces, one, two, three, four, five, six, for 20 miles. That's a long walk. And so there's this trail of blood and ash and sacrifice all the way from Obed-Edom's house to Jerusalem. And when David gets to Jerusalem, he strips off his kingly garments, strips himself down to his underwear, and begins to dance and twirl about in front of the ark. Of course, Michael, his wife, the daughter of Saul, she... She gets offended with that and says, oh, wasn't the king of Israel undignified today before all the the young maidens? He says, undignified? He goes, I'll become even more undignified than this. And what had David done? He, instead of being the king in the procession, see, when the kings would come and go and and, and, and the ancient day, what would happen is there would be a jester out in front of of the procession. And that jester would make a fool of himself as a way of saying, I am nothing and the king is everything. Well, that day, after they'd gone through that, that 20-mile trek of worship and praise and sacrifice to the Lord, David humbles himself by getting in front of the procession, stripping himself down to his underwear, and being the jester in the procession of the Lord. He says, I am no king. He is a king. I'll become more indignified than this. That's powerful. So they bring the ark in, and here's what they do. They immediately bring the ark, and they set it up in the tabernacle, in the tent that David had prepared for it. He's had this tent sitting out there for months. He's got this plan in his mind that we're going to do worship and prayer before the ark. See, there's fire that was on the altar from the tabernacle in the wilderness and the Lord was trying to change that reality from just fire on animal flesh to fire in the hearts of men. Fire of worship and incense going up before the Lord. And so David brings the ark back, immediately sets it in the tent and he turns to the chief song leaders and he says, go ahead, Asaph, start. And they begin to worship the Lord. And it's there that David delivers two psalms. Psalm 95 and 106, I believe. He delivers those two psalms right there. And it's from that moment on 
For the next 33 and a half years of David's uh, uh, reign, 24 hours a day before the Ark of the Covenant, there's worship and prayer ceaselessly. They would have one-hour shifts with 24 Levites per hour, and they would change every hour on the hour, and they would continue to worship and praise before the Lord. And it was in that environment where David wrote the, the, the vast majority of the Psalms. When you read a psalm and at the top it says, to the chief song leader, that's because David would either be in his palace or actually be before the ark and he'd be getting a prophetic download and he would write it all down and he would hand it to Asaph or the sons of Korah and he'd say, hey, 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 sing this, the Lord's speaking. And so many of the psalms were written in that environment. We kind of missed this point that the, the, the key worship ministry in the Bible, David, the key songwriting ministry in the Bible, came out of night and day worship and prayer. Well, here's what happens. They set up the ark. They set up night and day worship and prayer. Everything's going great. And David goes into his palace. And he's sitting there in his palace of all these fine woods and metals and stones, and he looks out his window, and the ark of the Lord is in a tent. And David says, ah, that's, ah, I can't do this. I can't live in a palace while the Lord is in a tent. He goes, I'm going to build a house for the Lord. So he gets Nathan the prophet, and he says, hey, listen, he goes, this is wrong. I can't be in a palace while the Lord is in a tent. He goes, what do you think? And Nathan goes, you know, essentially he goes, you're on a roll. There's a lot of good things happening. You got the ark back. You got night and day worship. Do whatever's in your heart. And it's that night that the Lord visits Nathan and gives Nathan the word of the Lord to David that is one of the foundational prophecies and the entire storyline of scripture. I am not overstating that a bit. The Lord cuts a covenant with David that night that has incredible implications to the whole rest of the storyline of the Bible and is referred to multiple times over and over and over in the scripture and is why when, when uh, the New Testament Jews were looking for Messiah and they would reference Jesus, they would say, according to the seed of David. Because the prophecy that Nathan gives spells out that Messiah would come from David's lineage. So let's pick up now the story in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. So as I said, David says, I want to build the Lord a house. Nathan says, do whatever's in your heart. And then the Lord visits Nathan that night. And the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And Nathan delivers this prophecy to David. It's, this prophecy is powerful. There's, it's got a five-fold promise from the Lord. That has dramatic, dramatic implications. So verse 8. 
Here's the Lord speaking to David. He says, and I have been with you wherever you have gone. Actually, you know what? Let's just do this. Let's just read the whole thing. And then I'll come back and I'll, and I'll comment on the, on the five features of the prophecy. Let me go ahead and get over there. First Chronicles 17. Let's pick it up in verse 4. Here's what the Lord says to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, you shall not build me a house to dwell in. For I have not dwelled in a house since the time that I brought up Israel, even to this day, but have gone from, from tent to tent and from one tabernacle to another. Wherever I have moved about with all Israel... Have I ever spoken a word to any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheephold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made your name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Verse 9, moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Verse 10, since the time I commanded judges to be over my people in Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. And it shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build me a house and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. And I will not take my mercy away from him as I took it from him who was before you. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. Man, that's a good prophecy. That's, that's, a, that's a big one. You know, we kind of like the little prophecy. Yea, thus saith the Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bless you. We go, oh, amen. This is <clears throat> so far off the charts as it relates to a prophetic word. It's probably, in my opinion, there's probably not another one like it in Scripture. Maybe a couple of the things the Lord said to Moses in Exodus 33. But this would be, as it relates to a prophetic word given to an individual, probably the most important one, the, the biggest one in the whole Bible. Now let's go through the five features of this prophecy. Verse 8. I've been with you wherever you've gone. I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. So David says, God, I want to build you a house. He goes, you can't build, build me a house. In 1 Chronicles 28, David retelling the story says that the reason why David couldn't build the Lord a house was because David was a man of war. He goes, the Lord goes, you've shed too much blood on the earth, David. You can't be the one who builds me a house, but your son will build it. But the Lord says, instead of you building me a house, I'll make you a name. Now that, that phrase, make you a name, that's a critical phrase. 
Because what it, what it really means is this. I am going to give you a position of authority and government that's unmatched. I am going to make your name great among all the men who've ever lived on the earth. I'm giving you a position of government more than just known as a historic king of Israel. I'm giving you authority, David, that's like the highest in all of creation among men. That's the idea. And we see promises that are going to be played out for David in Ezekiel. Ezekiel references prophetic promises given to David that are going to come to pass in the next age. David has got a governmental position in the next age. Essentially, he's the number one governmental leader in charge of the earth in the next age. It's pretty interesting. Right under Jesus. Then he says this, verse 9. He goes, I will appoint you a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. Appoint a place. He goes, I'm going to make sure Israel is stabilized and is fortified. I'm going to, I'm going to strengthen Israel so she's uprooted no more. This is her place. Now, this is powerful because what we're seeing here is that God is promising national blessings based on one man's heart of worship and obedience. Based on one man obeying the voice of the Lord and having a heart after God, the entire nation is getting incredible prophetic promises from from the mouth of the Lord. And oh, that there would be many in our day whose hearts would be so for the Lord. They'd have hearts like David, hearts of obedience poured out to God. And even under this, that the Lord would bless an entire nation because of the obedience of a few. Come on. Verse 10. Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, also I will subdue all your enemies. Furthermore, I tell you that the Lord will build you a house. I love this. The Lord is... I just love it. It's like this. David goes, oh, I love the Lord and I can't be in this palace while God's in a tent. No, I just just want to build him a house better than mine. And, And it's like the Lord is going, David, you are so sweet. You're so cute. He goes, I I never asked anybody to build me a house. And it's almost like the Lord's going, thank you, David, for your sweet heart of devotion. You've killed too many people, so you can't be the guy that builds a house. But I'll tell you what, I'll build you a house. I'll make you a name, and I'll build you a house. I'm going to give you governmental authority, David, and I'm going to build you a house. And this builds you a house, that promise is, it's this, I'm going to give you a lineage of kings. There is a line of kings coming from you, David, that's never been before. He goes, I'm going to give you governmental authority and dominion. I'm going to deliver your nation, and I'm going to bring something forth from you. I'm going to build you a house. You're going to have a name, and a line of kings is coming from your loins, David. 
He goes, no more shall the people of Israel be oppressed and I will subdue all of your enemies. Here's what he's saying. He goes, the oppression of the enemy is going to be lift. In other words, deliverance is coming and total victory. Total victory. You are going to move in dominion like you've never moved before. Now, David was anointed to bring deliverance to God's people. He had so many victories over the Philistines. But it goes beyond that. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, I should say, expands in an exponential way under David's dominion. Because the Lord promises David, he goes, No longer shall you be under the oppression of the enemy and victory will be yours in every situation. Powerful. And then finally, this and this is the bombshell. Like like the prophetic word wasn't good enough yet. Here's the bombshell. Verse 11 and then verse 14. When you read them together, you go, oh my goodness. Because you see Solomon mentioned, but all the scholars agree, this is not primarily about Solomon. This is about Jesus. This is about Messiah. Look at this. Verse 11. It shall be when your days are fulfilled, when you must go to be with your fathers, that I will set up your seed after you who will be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 14. And I will establish him in my house and in my kingdom forever. That's how you know it's not about Solomon. That's how you know this is about a king who has an everlasting kingdom. A king whose, whose government and of his rule and his authority, there will be no end. A king who will rule forever is coming from David's line. And it says, and his throne shall be established forever. And so the, the bullet point of that prophecy is this. David, Messiah, the son of God is coming from your lineage. The son of God will also be a son of David. And that, beloved, is why Jesus is called Son of David. Isn't it interesting? You read these verses in the New Testament. David, uh, Jesus, the seed of David. Jesus, the son of David. You go, uh, and then when, when they're dialoguing with the Pharisees, uh, whose son is he? You know, when they're talking about Messiah, whose son is he? He's the son of David. You ever wonder why it said that? It says that because of this prophecy. It's one of the most critical prophecies that explains the storyline of the Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 30. When Peter's preaching, he references this prophecy. Talking about David, he says, Therefore, being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. It's clear as a bell. It's amazing to me because I've just never heard it. I've never heard one message on this. The Jews were all looking for somebody from David's line. Because of this prophecy in 1 Chronicles 17. Probably the most critical prophecy given to any man in the scripture. Now here's the point. The Lord saw David keeping the sheep and he says he's a man after my own heart. And he says, who will do all my will? 
Here's the thing. When David gets the blueprints with Samuel and then he goes and drives out the Jebusites and then he goes through the challenge of getting the ark and he sets it up in Jerusalem and the very first thing he does is night and day worship before the ark that, beloved, is the tipping point in the scales of God. That is the, the moment of, of ignition. Because from that moment is where we get this prophecy. And what I want to say to you is this. When David sets up night and day worship before the ark, what he's doing is he's entering into the on earth as it is in heaven reality of government. Now, just follow me. The throne room of God in Revelation 4 has night and day worship before that throne. It takes place ceaselessly. They pray and worship before the throne in heaven all day, all night. They never stop. And one of the main songs they sing is, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's one of their favorite choruses. And it has continued ceaselessly since creation. And it will continue ceaselessly. And the four living creatures are the main four worship leaders. Now there's myriads of saints and believers and, and all sorts of there's elders and who knows what else. There's lots of other guys. Daniel talks about watchers. Who knows what's up there? They're fun stuff. Eyes and wings. Everything. Very cool. And it's going night and day, night and day, night and day. Beloved, the throne room of God is the governmental center of the entire universe. From the throne room of God, all of the the authority of God is manifest and his sovereignty is established from that place. When the Lord releases a decree, it comes from that throne. His dominion, his authority, his power all comes from that throne where night and day worship and prayer takes place. When David sets up night and day worship and prayer as the centerpiece of his kingdom, yea, the very first activity of his kingdom, he's replicating on earth the as it is in heaven reality. And that's why the Lord answers with, I am going to give you a lineage of kings. I'm going to give you a governmental authority. I'm going to give deliverance for the people of Israel. I'm going to rout all the enemies before her. Because here's why, when there's night and day worship and prayer going on, on the earth, it is a mirror reality for what's in heaven, and that place there is the centerpiece of governmental authority for the universe, and we replicate it here, and we release the dominion of God. Man, it's good. And so the Lord has David do that as the centerpiece of his kingship, of his reign To establish dominion, but to set up a pattern. That when we do it on earth as it is in heaven, I believe these fivefold promises, in like kind, a little lesser measure, of course, nobody else is going to get Messiah from their line. But in like kind, but in lesser measure, these fivefold promises can be ours. And the idea is it's ultimately about dominion and authority being released from the throne set around worship and prayer. And so here's what you end up with in Israel's history. Seven kings practice 
night and day worship and prayer. And all seven, watch this, they all have revival in the nation and all have dominion over the enemies of God. Beloved, this is a pattern that the Lord puts in the word for the people of God to practice. And so then when Jesus shows up, remember we started with Matthew 21. He goes, it's supposed to be a house of prayer, guys. You're more interested in personalities and in offerings. When he shows up and he says that, my house is to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. He goes, I wanted to give you dominion. I wanted to give you glory. I wanted to release my power and my blessing on you as a people and even the nation and the nations of the earth. But you've chosen something far less. Where is the prayer? Beloved, this is critical to our understanding as believers. And so now we live in a day and an hour where the Lord is raising up night and day prayer all over the earth. And let me explain it to you. He's raising it up all over the earth. It's not the tabernacle of David rebuilt, but it's in the same spirit as the tabernacle of David. Now, Amos 9, verse 10 and 11, and and Acts 15 15 and 16, describes that there's a day coming when the tabernacle of David will be restored. It will be rebuilt. And that simply means this, that there will be once again on Mount Zion, night and day, 24-hour worship before, it's not going to be the ark this time, it's going to be before Jesus. And that when that happens, Global dominion is going to be released in the earth. Now, one of the most, you got just a minute? I guess you do. One of the most uh, interesting verses to me, 1 Chronicles 28. Let me just show you this, this little side. Like, you read it and you go, what? What? As if I haven't given you enough to chew on yet. 1 Chronicles 28, David, at the end of his life, he's getting ready to install Solomon as king. He's already made all the preparations for the temple to be built. Solomon's going to carry that out. David's coming down toward the end. Verse 3, that's where you get the, but God said to me, you should not build a house for my name because you have been a man of war and have shed blood. Verse 4, however, the Lord God of Israel chose me above all the house of my father to be king over Israel, for he has chosen Judah to be the ruler And of the house of Judah, the house of my father, and among the sons of my father, he was pleased with me to make me king over all Israel. Look at verse 5. And of my sons, all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen my son Solomon to, look at this, sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. The throne of the kingdom of the Lord. Is Is that what your Bible says? Is Lord capitalized? That means Yahweh. And here's the deal. There is, 
<laughs> try to say this as clean as I can say it. There is this implication, but it's more than that. This, it's this explicit understanding that the man who is ruling, who is in David's line over the kingdom of Israel is also ruling the kingdom of God on the earth. The kingdom of the Lord over Israel. So he goes, why? I don't get this whole Israel thing. Why is Israel so important? Because the Lord set Israel as the center uh, place and Jerusalem as the central city for his government to be established in the earth. The scripture says it actually in two places. In, in chapter 29, he says it again. The kingdom of the Lord over Israel. Now that gives you a whole different picture of what, quote unquote, this Israel thing is about. Because the Lord says, I am choosing leadership over this nation in this city, Jerusalem, and that leader is going to be the ruler of the kingdom of God on the earth. And so when we fast forward and we see Ephesians 1, verse 11, and he says, it's the summing up of all things in heaven and earth in Jesus Christ. Or when we see Matthew 28, verse 18, and Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. It's no doubt what Jesus is talking about. He is God's chosen king to rule the kingdom of God on the earth. And beloved, he's coming back to Jerusalem and he's going to rule the nations from there. He's going to rule the kingdom of the Lord over the earth, starting in Israel. Now let me give you a couple little, just a little side. You got to study this stuff. This is interesting stuff. Psalm 89 and Psalm 132 have large portions that talk about Jesus in his messianic rule in the age to come, ruling the nations from Jerusalem. Now here's what I want to get to. We see the promises that God gave David that came as a result of David setting up night and day prayer. Incredible promises. Those promises, I believe, are available to anyone who will, in like manner, do night and day prayer in an on earth as it is in heaven reality. Like manner, lesser measure. On earth as it is in heaven. So we do it here as it is there, and it releases government and authority and dominion. Now, here's the thing this is where it's going. And this is what I've been laying out for you, but I want to, I want to uh, punctuate it now through giving you solid verses on it. The age to come, Jesus is going to rule and reign, we just said it, in Jerusalem, and his throne will be in the rebuilt tabernacle of David. That is going to be the reality for the next age. So here's what God's doing right now. He's raising up night and day prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David all across the earth. And beloved, all of it 
is prophesying of the future reign of the king. He's going to rule and reign in the tabernacle of David. It will be the ultimate on earth as it is in heaven. You're going to have the father in the new Jerusalem and his throne room is going to be 24-7 and you're going to have the son on earth in the earthly Jerusalem and his throne room is going to be 24-7. It's going to be a mirror reality on earth as it is in heaven. It's beautiful. Now let me give you some verses. We're going to land here. Isaiah 16, 5. I love this verse. In mercy, the throne will be established and one will sit on it in truth. Where? In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. That one is Jesus. Look at Psalm 72. It's coming up on your screen. Talking. This is one of the great messianic prophecies. Psalm 72. I love it because it's the last psalm that David wrote. He he caps his prophetic minstrel ministry with this psalm. And it's all about Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecy that, that Nathan gave him. Verse 7, in his days, talking about Messiah, the righteous shall flourish and the abundance of peace until the moon is no more. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Look at verse 11. Yes, all kings shall bow down before him. All nations shall serve him. Verse 15, and he shall live. The gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually. And daily he shall be praised. Do you want to know what the central governmental figure, I mean feature will be of of Jesus' throne in the age to come? Worship and prayer. It is the cornerstone of how God runs everything. The government of the universe managed from the throne room in heaven, night and day worship and prayer. Jesus' throne on the earth in the age to come, night and day worship and prayer. Well, beloved, what about through the blood of Christ? We're all a kingdom of priests. God wants to release dominion on the earth. What's he doing right now? Setting up night and day worship and prayer. The overflow of the concepts of a culture of prayer, they all lead us to this, night and day on earth as it is in heaven so God can release dominion in the earth. Look at verse 16. There will be an abundance of grain in the earth. On the top of the mountains, its fruit shall wave like Lebanon. And those of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Verse 17. His name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. And blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. (laughs) That's where we're going, beloved. 
the whole earth will be filled with his glory from the centerpiece, from the central ruling place on the earth, Jesus in Jerusalem in the tabernacle of David. Amen and amen. And then it says, verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Beloved, the storyline of this issue about prayer is so much broader and so much greater for the people of God than we've ever imagined it to be. Prayer is where the foundation of government and authority is released through the people of God. The idea that we've made prayer this side thing, this little add-on that a few people do in the side room while the guy over here gets to do the real ministry, it's such a farce, it's so far from the actuality that the scripture has laid out for us. It's incredible the central uh, feature, the central place that, that continuous worship and pl- prayer has in the Bible and has in the age to come, the, the, the idea that we would put it off to the side, it's, it's inconceivable. And beloved, now here we are. See, the, the Lord, he's going to have his way. <laughs> Just ask Jonah. I mean, you know, just ask all the saints. Just ask Paul. Just ask Moses. You know, Moses, you're my deliverer. He goes, but, 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 but I, I got a stutter. I can't speak. He goes, really? Boom. Now try it. Oh, hey, that worked pretty good. I mean, the Lord will have his way. And what we're seeing, we are in the beginning of a reformation, and what we're seeing right now is God moving us from a culture of programs to a culture of prayer, and beloved, it's unto this end. He's weaving together a global tapestry of prayer all over the earth. It's gonna be night and day, many pockets, many centers. Not every one of them will be 24-7. There will be multiple 24-7 outlets, but I'm telling you, there's gonna be 40 hours here, 60 hours there, you know, 20 hours here, night and day, 168 hours there. It's gonna be all over the earth, and what's he doing? He's Covering the earth with this on earth as it is in heaven so he can release government. And it's in that context, the son of God is going to come back and take the government of the nations. And I look into these truths and I go, how did I get here? And I mean, you guys are stellar. I mean, I look around and go, wow, you guys are amazing. But I kind of go, Lord... You pick some like dandies to do this thing with, starting with me. He has an agenda, beloved. This is what it's always been about, and this is what it will be about before the Lord's return. And all for the day when dominion is released on the earth 
and mass. Beloved, we're going to see it more and more and more and more increase as the day draws near and more night and day places of prayer are exploding. We're going to see more and more dominion of the kingdom of God released, more authority released. He's going to saturate the environment. He's going to saturate the air of the nations with incense and prayer. And it's in that environment that his dominion is going to be released more and more. There's going to be more kingdom power, more signs and wonders, more deliverance, more salvation, more healing, more kingdom stuff until the day when Jesus comes and the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Because when he rules and reigns in Jerusalem, every nation will bow down to him. And when that throne is established and Jesus reigns from the midst, oh, beloved, our wildest dreams don't touch it yet where this thing is going. And we're getting in on it. Oh, I'm so grateful. We're all going to be in on it in a minute. He's going to do this all over the earth in a minute. He's, I mean, he's already doing it all over the earth. He's going to saturate the earth with it in a minute. The last 10 years has seen the most incredible uptake, uptick of worship and prayer across the globe. I mean, it just, it's just incredible what's happened in the worship and prayer movement across the globe. And it's not losing any steam. It's gaining momentum. Missions organizations are, are embracing the ideas of night and day prayer and beginning to establish outlets all over the earth. They're setting up churches now that they're, they're setting a, a foundation of worship and prayer in as the furnace for their missions bases across the nations. Do you know how crazy of an idea that is? That, the, that, the, that the, the missions movement is embracing worship and prayer as its furnace? I tell you, I tell you, dominion, kingdom authority is coming in this age. And the church, her finest hour, it's just in front of us. It's just ahead. This concept of a culture of prayer, this is where it's going. Night and day before the throne as the centerpiece of governmental authority on the earth. Amen. Amen. Good, let's stand. Hey, I know that was a mouthful. Go back and look at these verses. Go back and look at this stuff. Read it. Read 1 Chronicles 12 through 17. Read Psalm 72. Read the chapters. I mean, it's astounding how much is in there that the Lord lays out for us. He has an agenda. Let's just invite the Holy Spirit to come. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. God, I pray you would make these truths clear in our hearts. You grant us understanding. See what you're doing. 
God, you desire to release dominion through the people of God. And so I pray, raise up your house of prayer across the nations. God, give us real revelation of what it means on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Kingdom come. Will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven.